Okay, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the creation account. And I chose for our verse at the top of our handout today, 2 Timothy 3.16, that tells us all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, why did I choose a New Testament verse about Genesis chapter 1? Because it says all scripture is inspired, and it literally means God breathed. We know that Moses, as we discussed last week, and as you saw in your homework, is the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, he had plenty of time to write them during 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> and you have to wonder, you know, we, we talked about last week, was it possible that he actually saw the beginning, like John saw the end when he was up on the mountain, because the Lord said to him, build the articles for the tabernacle exactly as I have shown you on the mountain. So we know there are some things that he actually saw. There are some things I'm sure God just downloaded into him so that he could put them in print for us. And you have to wonder how that all happened. Maybe in the tent of meeting where he met with God, that God spoke these things to him and Moses was able to put them in print. But we know that what God spoke through Moses in Genesis chapter 1 was given as fact for us to believe. There's no argument about God existing before the beginning of time as we know it. He just states it as fact. So we are to believe it by faith. And that's our first point today. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 3 says, then God said, let there be light. Christians, take these verses literally. We have had our minds illumined by God's word, our spirits awakened to new life, and our faith is in God and his word. We believe that science evolved out of creation. One of my good friends who is trained in science and taught science emailed me recently with these thoughts. Her name is Joni Shankles. I have shared some of her things in the past. She said, science takes the posture that everything is knowable with the right tools. We can figure this out. Faith takes the posture that some things are not knowable, even with the best tools. <laughs> we are not God. Genesis gives us a vision of our identity that science cannot. Creation versus evolution is not primarily a debate of evidence. It is a difference in faith. We're all putting our faith in something, in a belief system, and we have chosen God's word. John Phillips says, the Bible is not a handbook of astronomy or of any other science. However, each time the Spirit of God refers to a subject that can be scientifically investigated, he does so with unerring precision. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, completely unknowable by us, have reached down and revealed creation and God's great love through his written word and the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Now think about this with me. John Phillips says, The Bible takes some 50 chapters to discuss the construction and significance of the tabernacle. Now I know when I was teaching through Exodus many years ago, and the Lord first began to reveal to me the truths of the tabernacle, that the articles actually represent or are a picture or shadow of what's in the throne room of God. So they are pictures of what actually exists in God's presence. We also know, though, that every article points to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every article. And then as I shared with you through Leaving Ordinary, the Lord revealed to me how 
as now priests, we're all priests in Christ, that we can minister to the Lord by walking through the articles of the tabernacle to prepare our hearts for intercession. And I can't tell you how many years I would get to the chapters on the tabernacle and like many of you, I know, you get to Exodus 25 through 40 and you start skimming. Because it starts giving you all of these details, these measurements, what they're made out of, and all. And I would start skimming and thinking, how can this possibly be important? Oh, how little did I know? Everything God puts in his word is significant, and everything has layers of meaning that he only reveals to those who are willing to look intently into the perfect law of liberty. And then he begins to unveil before us the truths that he has contained in his word. So listen to the rest of what he said. I'll start back. The Bible takes some 50 chapters to discuss the construction and significance of the tabernacle. Yet it was only a very temporary sanctuary. 50 chapters about the tabernacle and five words about the stars. You know what he said? And he created the stars also. (laughs) That's all he said. Truly, the Bible looks at things from quite a different perspective from ours. The Bible is a handbook of redemption. That is why it was nothing for God to create. To create, he only had to speak. But to redeem, he had to suffer. That is the perspective of the Bible. The Bible is a book about redemption. In fact, I was listening to one pastor yesterday that Nancy Guthrie was interviewing because he spent three and a half years preaching through the book of Genesis. (laughs) And he basically says Genesis is a prologue for Exodus. It's not that it isn't important, but the purpose of Genesis is to explain the beginning so that we understand God's redemptive plan. So the Bible is all about redemption. Now let's look at the six days of creation, and let's pick up in Genesis 1, verse 3, through verse 25, and I want us to read through it together. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's exactly how he did it. He spoke, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. I happen to believe God created all that we know in six 24-hour days. Because he's very specific about saying there was morning, there was evening, the first day. He numbers the days. And if somebody can speak and things come into being... That's not too difficult. It's not going to take ages and billions of years for these things to happen because he spoke them into existence. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven And there was evening and there was morning a second day. So we see day one, light is created and separated from dark. Day two, the heavens are created. Verse nine, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, that's important, after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. There's the kind of almost afterthought. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So we see in the first three days, and you saw that in your workbook, God is actually forming the earth. And the next three days, he's going to be filling the earth. So we see that in day four, he fills the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, if you're having trouble with the 24-hour days, you know, we need to also remember that God spoke through Moses and gave him these instructions. And he is the one who delineated that it was day and night, evening and morning, and he named and numbered the days. So we also think about there are those in scripture that ask God questions, Job being one of them. Job went through horrific trials. We look at Job's life and and it gives us great hope because in the midst of such devastation, he never lost faith in God. And he was even able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But he still asked him questions. (laughs) He still wanted to know why. And he's asking all these questions. If I could come before God, I would ask him this, I would ask him this. And how does God respond to Job? With questions of his own. And what does he say? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were those who questioned God's word when he laid the foundation of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Yesterday's reading in the chronological Bible was out of the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was confessing to the Lord, you alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserved them all. Not only did he make them, but he preserves them. And we know he created them through Christ and Christ sustains it all. And the angels of heaven worship you. Nehemiah knew God had created exactly as he said in Genesis chapter 1. So he's forming and filling. Once the initial universe is created by the will and purpose of God, the triune Godhead now makes and shapes the earth and the heavens into an organized and functioning cosmos in preparation for the life that would be created on days five and six. The crowning image of God would be charged with the responsibility of caring for the creation. 
John Phillips also said, the basic command for all living things was that each reproduce after its kind. The expression occurs 10 times in Genesis 1. It's the rock upon which the whole theory of evolution perishes. God has decreed that there be no change from one kind to another kind. There may be mutation and change within any given kind, but no kind is changed into another kind. The principles of genetics have firmly established the fact that inherited life characteristics are implanted in the genes. It's how God created us. Now he gets to man on day six, and we are created in his image. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, we know who the us is, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We have been given God's imprint, created in his image and set apart from the rest of creation. We saw last week that man was created as a trichotomy, just as God is three in one. We are also spirit, soul, and body. And God is spirit, and man connects with God spirit to spirit. We are eternal beings. He created us in his image, male and female, and we are different from the animals. Man is a person, has intellect, emotions, the capacity to connect and interact with fellow man. Man understands moral responsibility and accountability. R. David Skinner said, although Adam knew what was right, he was given independence of action and could choose the wrong, which in a couple of weeks we'll get to in Genesis chapter 3. We're created in his image, with his imprint, and God granted us the ability to choose because God knows coerced love is not love. He could have created us as robots, but he chose not to. He chose to create us as image bearers with the ability to choose to respond to his love. And so he woos us, he draws us. When we look at creation, did man do anything? Did we have a hand in any of creation? No. Did you do anything to earn your salvation? We see over and over there are shadows of reality in Genesis that point to the truths revealed to us by Christ in the spirit realm. Just as we did nothing in creation except respond to the creator, we do nothing for our salvation except respond to his invitation to eternal life. He did it all. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place. He paid our sin debt. He went in the grave conquering death, hell in the grave, and came out with the keys. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news we have because our creator God loved us so much that he made the way even before he created us. And then we see God blesses them in 28 through 30. 
God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see that God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and then subdue and rule over creation. And that command, that blessing was given to Adam and Eve, to male and female, because it takes male and female to procreate and to fill the earth. And as man and woman, they were to rule and subdue and to care for all of creation. So we said that was God's original design. We're going to get into more depth next week because Genesis 1 is kind of the macro view of creation. Genesis 2 goes into a more human-focused view of creation. Genesis 1 is all about the Creator. Genesis 2 gives us more information about Adam and Eve. So we'll go into more detail next week about what it means to be male and female and that you can actually know that you are male or female, that God made it pretty evident, regardless of what our culture would say. <laughs> And he's given, us very, <laughs> he's given us very specific instructions. And as it takes male and female to procreate physically, it also, in the church realm, takes male and female to procreate spiritually. We are to both, male and female, be about the Great Commission, to be sharing the gospel and making disciples of all the earth. That's what he has called us to. Those are our marching orders. So just as he gave Adam and Eve marching orders, he has given us as his bride, the church, marching orders to advance his kingdom. So the seventh day is a day of rest. Now let's look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, obviously, God does not need to rest. But God chose the seventh day as a day to set aside that we might worship him and rest in him. So he's giving us an example it's just like when Jesus was on this planet and he lived a perfect life. Jesus did not need to be baptized, but he did it as a role model for us. He was showing us and he honored the Sabbath, but he did say because the Jews in their diligence not to go back to pagan idolatry um, during the 400 years of silence when they had returned and they would rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, they created the Talmud, which were additional rules and laws that they would follow so that they would not go back to pagan idolatry. They did not want to go back into captivity. So they created additional laws. They added to it. And the Sabbath became burdensome instead of being the rest that God originally intended it to do. And what did Jesus say when he was asked about what he did on the Sabbath? What did he say? Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is to be a blessing to you. It is a day of rest. And is it not interesting that the seventh day for God was man's first full day? 
And I think about that even though it was day seven, which they set aside as the Sabbath in the Old Testament. For us in the church, we celebrate the Lord's Day, which is the first day, which here it is foreshadowed. Once again, it's the first day of man's existence that is the Sabbath. It's a day of rest, a day of understanding that he has done it all for us. Now, this can be convicting because a lot of us have gotten caught up into the busyness of our culture. Our culture rewards those who work seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day. That is not what God has called us to. In fact, um, Dallas Willard gave a very astute answer in response to the question, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? He was asked that by John Ortberg. And Dallas responded, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He went on to say, there's nothing else. (laughs) Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And that's by John Mark Comer in his book, The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. And then he went on to say, could it be that Willard was right? That an overbusy, digitally distracted life of speed is the greatest threat to spiritual life that we face in the modern world? I can't help but wonder if Jesus would say to our entire generation what he said to Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. What was the one thing that Mary had chosen? She had chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching. She had chosen to block out the busyness of Martha, who was in the kitchen preparing a meal. And meals are not bad things. It's wonderful to serve. Serving is a gift, but we need to know when to serve. We need to know how to prioritize it. And that sitting at the feet of Jesus is preeminent. It's the most important thing we can do. So I want to encourage you to build margin into your life. You cannot hear from God on the fly. Not that he can't break through, he can. But the times of deepest revelation for me in God's word have been times of solitude, when I've been in his word and I've been in prayer. It's those moments that he allows me to see things that I've not seen before. In fact, next week, I can hardly stand it because I have such good things to share with you. And it all happens sitting out in my backyard, just contemplating because the world is telling us so many different things about what it means to be female. And so I've been reading, because I've been studying this so deeply, very liberal, excuse me, progressive Christians to very conservative, what I would say almost hyper-conservative Christians and everything in between. And I'm looking at what they're saying, but I'm coming back to the Word of God and saying, God, what did you say? I don't want to take away from your Word. I don't want to add to your Word. I want to do, I want only to know what you said, and I want to apply that to my life. I do know that he told Moses to tell the Israelites in the Ten Commandments they were to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And it has a blessing that goes with it. And so we will be blessed if we obey the word of God, if we do what God has said. So I encourage you, put some margin in your life. Make sure you have time every day that you spend in the word of God and in prayer. But then you need to set aside a day of rest, a Sabbath day. And for most of us, that's a Sunday where, yes, we come to church, we worship him, we make that our priority, and then have some time in the afternoon where you're not doing chores at home, but you're resting. Take a nap, take a walk, get out into nature, spend time with your family, unhurried, at a leisurely meal where you can just sit and talk and find out 
Things maybe that you would not have known if you'd not taken the time to just sit and listen to one another. It is then that we experience the real life-giving connection with the Lord and with others that God created us for. That's part of what it means to be created in His image. We were created for relationship. We are created for connection. And virtual relationships and virtual connections are just that. They're virtual. They're not real. They don't feed your soul and your spirit like real life-on-life connections do. So we need to make time for that because that is what God has called us to. This pastor, John Mark Comer, that wrote The Relentless Elimination of Hurry, was pastoring a multi-campus church in the Northwest. And he was traveling and speaking because the church had grown and they were being successful. And he's writing some books and he's flying back from a speaking engagement. And it just hit him. I'm burnt out. Like, I have no more energy. This cannot be what God has called me to. And after spending time with the Lord, decided he was going to go and basically demote himself. He says, I just want to pastor one campus. I want to move close to that church. It was the one in the downtown area. I want to be able to walk or ride my bike wherever I'm going. I want to be able to take my children to school. I'm intentionally slowing down because I want to be able to commune with God. And I want to hear his voice. If the enemy is using busyness to distract us, that means we're going to start making decisions in the flesh and our perspective will be in the natural. The only way we can see spiritually and hear the voice of God is to slow down enough to be in tune with him. And it is his rest that he desires for us to enter. Do you remember? In fact, Hebrews 4 gives us a little more insight into this. But the Israelites were not allowed to enter the promised land, which God called what? His rest. Why? Unbelief. Unbelief. If we're not honoring the Sabbath, it's because of unbelief. If we're not entering into his rest, it's because we don't believe what God has said is true. So we've got to choose today to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Because we must understand that obedience always precedes blessing. And just as the Israelites were not allowed to enter God's rest to the promised land that he had promised them, had given them, it was theirs for the taking. But because they would not believe, they ended up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness until that generation died. And then their children that they were afraid were going to die if they went into the promised land were the ones that actually got to go in and take possession. Well, Jesus said what in John 10.10? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to prevent you from doing what? Jesus said, I came what? That you might have life and have it abundant. His abundance is our rest. That's the spirit-filled life. That's what the promised land is is a picture of. It's an Old Testament physical picture of a spiritual reality because we can end up as believers wandering around in the world, the wilderness, because of unbelief and never really enter into all that God has promised and has given us because we're in Christ Jesus. We said last week how much God loves us. And I hope this week An understanding of that has settled into your spirit, man. And that you've really begun to believe that you're beloved. 
I spoke at a women's retreat this past weekend for a church in Murfreesboro, which, you know, anytime I get asked to speak at a church anywhere close to my grands, I just pray that Lord's going to let me go. And so I did, and I drove up there Friday in horrific rain. And so I'm driving up there, and my GPS had told me that I would be there by 5.30, and that didn't start until 7, so I'm thinking, that's great. I can get checked into my, you know, my room and be ready to go when it starts. Well, I didn't take into account the rain that I was going to be driving through on Friday. And so I got to Jackson. Everything was slowed down to like 40 miles an hour. The traffic was backed up. I'm realizing, whoo, this may not be good, but I've got an hour and a half. I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll make this. It's no problem. And then there was a wreck, and you get diverted from the wreck and then you get back on I-40 and hit Nashville at 4.30, 4.40, and it's crazy traffic, and I'm trying to get around 40 to go around because I'm driving to Crossville, and so I called the director, women's minister director, and said, just heads up, it's a little before five, and I'm just now on your side of Nashville. I shouldn't have a problem, but with the rain and everything, I don't know, so I just wanted you to know if, if I'm not there, you guys just keep going, and she said, well, we're going to pray that you get here, so I, you know, I have an, a choice, right, at that moment to either get stressed and try to drive too fast in the rain to make it there, or I can say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. You know what? You knew all of this, and so I chose to believe that God's sovereign will would be accomplished whatever that time is that he wanted me to be there. And so I popped Charity Gale on my through my sound system, and I started listening to her new CD, Endless Praise. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to turn my vehicle into a praise session, and I'm going to bless and praise the Lord. And I rolled in there right at 7 o'clock, and I pulled right up to the door to go into the the area where they were meeting, to the, the meeting center, and just, just left it right there and just walked in. And um, they were just getting started. I didn't even get up to like 7.40, but afterwards, one of the women's ministry leaders came up to me, and she said, I couldn't believe you walked in here so calm. I would have been stressed to the max. And I said, you know what? I had a choice. <laughs> I had a choice. Just like we have a choice every single day. Am I going to trust the Lord? Am I going to believe him? Am I going to worship him and trust that he is in control? The God who spoke everything that we know into existence is in control of our lives. How many times have we been saying already this semester in just our two weeks, God is the author of our story. He has the pen in his hand. And either I surrender to him, or I find myself fighting against the living God. I'm choosing to surrender, and I'm choosing to believe, and I'm choosing to take God at his word, and I want him to use me, to grant me eyes to see and ears to hear so that I can be about advancing his kingdom, and I'm not caught up in the things of this world you know, a spirit, soul, and body. Arthur Pink says, the spirit is capable of God consciousness. So it's in our spirit man that we're aware of him, that he speaks to us spirit to spirit. The soul is the seat of self-consciousness and the body of sense consciousness. Before we're saved, we live life from the outside in. According to our physical senses, and according to our natural reasoning. reasoning, So we're living according to the body and the soul. But once we get saved and our spirit man is brought back to life, the spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And now we are, as we discussed last week, walking holy of holies. We have the spirit of God living within us, but we have to learn how to live from the inside out. No longer through our physical senses, but through the spiritual senses we've been given through the Holy Spirit.
May we be diligent students of God's word and his ways that he might be glorified in us and through us.